0: This week, I saw a comic strip about wedding vows that struck a little
1: bit too close to home. In the comic, the officiant asked the groom, do you promise to love her in sickness and in health?
0: I do. Do you promise to love her till death? Do you part? I do. Do you
1: promise to order your own fries if you want them instead of saying you don't want fries, then requesting a taste of hers, then helping yourself to roughly half of them?
0: Wait a second, who wrote these vows, the groom asks. Just answer the question, the bride says. Friends, I'd be in big trouble
1: if food sharing were a part of Lindsay and my wedding vows. Lindsay probably wishes it were. But I wanted to begin this morning with a lighthearted illustration, but only to get at a serious topic, Uh, because we live in a day, don't we, in which the entire topic of, of marriage, the idea of marriage is under siege. Just consider God's ideal. Marriage is between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Have you ever considered that every single part of that statement is under attack today? It started with the one lifetime part, starting with California in 1970, ending with New York in 2010. Now all 50 states allow for no fault divorce, in which divorce can be granted even without a breach in the marriage contract. And divorces have skyrocketed during that time. If the stats are right, 40% of first marriages end in divorce, with the number shooting to over 60% for second marriages and over 70% per third. Permanent vows, while laudable and ideal, well, they can be easily set aside when they no longer promote my comfort and my convenience and my psychological well-being, my personal fulfillment. What matters isn't so much my promise, but my happiness. Well, friends, as Christians, we know that our God does indeed care about our happiness. He intends for us to flourish as creatures living in his world, but he has designed our flourishing to correspond to the architecture of his design for us. We'll find true happiness when we pursue true holiness. In our passage today, Jesus calls his followers to, to swim against the prevailing cultural currents and have as high a view of marriage as possible. Marriage is one of the distinct ways we as Christians showcase the glory and love of our King for all the world to see. So, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19? Continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew 19—that's that's page 824. If you don't have a Bible this morning, if indeed you don't, just grab that one under the pew in front of or the seat in front of you. We don't have pews; uh, the seat in front of you, and uh, use that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take it home and make it yours. Matthew 19. Friends, Matthew 19 represents a transition point in Matthew's gospel. Just look together at verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Up to this point, nearly all of Jesus' ministry uh, had been in Galilee, in the, in the north part of Palestine. Galilee was the region where Jesus was born in Nazareth, and it was in Galilee, Capernaum, that became Jesus' home base for ministry. But now Jesus leaves Galilee, and he heads south toward Judea. And friends, he's not going to return to Galilee until after he's resurrected from the dead. And Judea is the region of Palestine where where, where Jerusalem is located, and Jerusalem is jesus 's final destination. Remember, we know Jesus predicted in matthew sixteen twenty one that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed, and on the third day be raised so really, with each text of Matthew that we look at together from, from Matthew 19 all the way to Jesus' betrayal in Matthew 26. We should, we should see Golgotha's Hill looming larger and larger in our viewfinder. Of course, we know that it was Israel's wicked religious rulers, their leaders that were responsible on a human level for Jesus's eventual arrest and crucifixion. And here at the beginning of chapter 19, we get yet another preview of that ultimate conflict with another clash with the Pharisees. No sooner had Jesus crossed into the southern territory, the Pharisees of Judea, while they run the play that the Pharisees of Galilee had been running all along, they seek to entrap Jesus, to discredit him, this time about the ever thorny topic of marriage and divorce. So let's begin reading our text. We're going to pick up where we left off, right there in verse 3. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And this is the word of the Lord. I think the structure of uh, Matthew 19, 1 to 12 isn't complicated. Verses one to two provide the transitional material we talked about a few month, uh, moments ago. Verses three to nine cover the, the question and answer between Jesus and the Pharisees about marriage and divorce. And then in verse twelve, uh, excuse me, verses ten to twelve, Jesus responds to his disciple's statement about the seriousness of of marriage with a word about singleness and, and celibacy. Friends, each and every uh, sermon, I try to give you a main idea, kind of a big summary statement that encapsulates the meaning of the text that I hope will drive the agenda of the sermon. Here's the main idea of Matthew 19:1 to
0: 12. A little bit longer than normal. If you're married, Jesus calls you to a lifelong covenant with your spouse.
1: And for some who are single... Kingdom-minded celibacy is the best path. Wow. It was long and uh, tongue-tying, I guess. Uh, let's try that again. If you're married, Jesus calls you to a lifelong covenant with your spouse, and for some who are single, kingdom-minded celibacy is the best path. Number one, Jesus says, "Don't look for reasons to divorce." Three points this morning as they kind of correspond to the structure of the text. We see in verses three to six, Jesus is so clear. Do not look for reasons to divorce. Number two, however, Jesus allows an exception. Jesus allows an exception in verses seven to nine. Number three, celibate singleness might honor God Two verses 10 to 12. Brothers and sisters, I'm aware that this is a painful topic for many of you. Maybe you, you've been divorced. In the past, perhaps you grew up in a broken home. Divorce isn't so much a topic to you as a lived experience. Well, friends, I I prayed this morning that this text wouldn't function like a a sledgehammer to pound your conscience for sins that, that you've already repented of. Rather, I hope this text will encourage you this morning about your future. Because no matter your situation, no matter if you're married or single, There is real hope for you to honor God with your life, no matter what your past may be. And I pray this text might be a means to that very end. Let's look at this first section of text this morning. Don't look for reasons to divorce. When the religious leaders approached Jesus to ask him about marriage and divorce, it it really was not a good faith inquiry, was it? Matthew, who would no doubt have been present uh, with Jesus in this moment, writes that the Pharisees sought to test him. The Pharisees' test wasn't to decide whether Jesus was truly a prophet of God. They had already made that judgment. Jesus, to them, was a blasphemer. He was an imposter. He was a threat to their entire religious system. And indeed, he was. Perhaps the Pharisees hoped Jesus might give them something juicy, right? To take back to King Herod. Remember, Herod imprisoned and then decapitated John the Baptist. Why? Why? because John had spoken out prophetically about Herod's own divorce and adultery with his brother's wife. And the Pharisees' question to Jesus that day was explosive. It was dicey, even among the Jews. The Jewish writings from this era, friends, tell us that the the Pharisees were split into two different camps about what grounds the law of Moses, the Torah, gave for divorce. Specifically, these camps took opposing sides over a, over a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Uh, to the, the Pharisees who questioned Jesus, they reference this passage explicitly in verse 7. You can see that when they talk about the certificate of divorce. And even their initial question about divorce for any cause shows us that they have this passage in mind. So before we dig into Matthew, let's turn back briefly uh, and, and let's look at this passage together that ignited the the controversy in ancient Israel. Turn back to Deuteronomy 24. It's on page
0: 165. Page 165, if you need it. Deuteronomy 24, 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, If
1: then she finds no favor in his eyes and because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, she departs out of his house and she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord. I read it quickly because really what concerns us there is in verse one. As you can see, friends, this portion of the Mosaic law is dealing with a messy situation. It concerns a woman who's been divorced multiple times and what's allowable for the first husband who divorced her. Uh, this dispute among the Pharisees of Jesus' day was over what some indecency in verse one of Deuteronomy 24 referenced. Some of the Pharisees believed that the indecency was flagrant sexual immorality. That word indecency is translated uh, nakedness in other places in the Torah, so this certainly points us in the direction of sexual sin, doesn't it? And this more conservative sect of the, of the Pharisees taught that if a man d- divorced his wife, uh, or excuse me, if a man discovered his wife committed such indecency, such immorality, he must divorce her. Like it's a command, right? There, there's no provision for forgiveness or reconciliation whatsoever. He must divorce her. But the majority of the Pharisees had a more liberal view that the indecency of Deuteronomy 24.1 justified divorce for any reason and that the wife fell out of favor with the husband. So things like this, if the wife developed physical traits that made her unattractive to the husband,
0: like poor posture, have poor posture, poor posture thinning hair, missing teeth, and the like, he could divorce her.
1: If she didn't offer physical relations frequently enough, that was grounds for divorce. If she spoke loudly enough in the home that the neighbors could overhear uh,
0: her and embarrass her husband, or if she overcooked his meal, he could initiate a divorce. Wowzers. You
1: can see the similarities to no-cause divorce of our day, can't you? Sin that, that, that breaks the, the covenant of marriage isn't necessary to provide grounds for the divorce according to this view. Just anything that the husband doesn't like about the wife. So friends, as you can see, this view that these liberal Pharisees had not only carried in an astonishingly low view of marriage, it put the husband in the place of complete power. It left the wife vulnerable to mistreatment and to abuse. That's the context of the Pharisees' question to Jesus in Matthew 19, 3. When they ask Jesus, is it lawful, verse 3, to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're asking Jesus if he agrees with the dominant religious view of the day that allowed a man to, to divorce his wife for any cause at all, not just for sexual immorality. Look at the way that Jesus responds in verses 4 to 5. He answers... Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Well, they, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, Jesus says to the Pharisees, guys, you have picked the entire wrong starting line for the discussion. For either of your views, your starting line is what some indecency means in Deuteronomy. But the right starting line for this topic isn't Deuteronomy. It's Genesis, right? You need to go back to the very beginning. You need to go back to God's original design for marriage at creation. And Jesus draws here from two passages in the opening words of the Bible. We read them earlier today, Jesus, uh, Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. Notice what Jesus emphasizes in his answer to the Pharisees. First, he highlights the fact that men and women image God. We represent him together. They biologically complement one another in this very imaging. Did you see that? There, there's unity of value, unity of dignity, but a diversity of function. So in Genesis 1.26, God creates humanity in his very image. We are here to image God's glorious character. We do so by representing his rule, his kingship, his dominion on the earth. Then comes verse 27, which Jesus paraphrases. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them, male and female created them. And of course, in the, in the verse following that we didn't read this morning, God says another primary way that humanity rules for God is by procreating and by multiplying image bearers so that God's glory extends from Eden across the entire world. So what is Jesus saying to the Pharisees? He's reminding them that God fit humans for marriage in the way that he created us. Male and female are created for each other in every way. Even our very biology in creation complements, fits one another for the purpose of sexuality and procreation so that we fulfill God's creative purpose for us. By the way, by the way, quick aside, if you ever encounter today the argument that Jesus never speaks to the issue of homosexuality, gay marriage, transgenderism, and therefore he allows it, well, here's your counter argument. When Jesus does speak specifically to the issue of sexuality and marriage. He does so in the explicit context of God's creative design in the very beginning, right? As it pertains even to human biology. God created two distinct sexes, male and female. Gender is not fluid with our ever-changing psychology. God's design for sexuality and marriage in the beginning corresponds to the physiological makeup of men and women. God fit a man for a woman and a woman for a man, not a man for a man and a woman for a woman. So friends, what Jesus is saying is, is that God's creative design trumps any other argument. God's the creator. Sex and marriage are his idea. And therefore what he says not only sets the boundaries for our thinking and behavior, we can be confident that the way God has designed his world as we live in it produces the maximum amount of true human happiness
0: and flourishing. Aside over. But notice, Jesus not only highlights God's design, he does so to emphasize what?
1: The permanence of marriage. Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 verbatim. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Remember, friends, God created Adam, or excuse me, God created Eve from Adam's rib, just near his heart, to be his companion in their task to represent God on the earth. It wasn't good that Adam was alone in this high calling that God gave him. He needed a helper. And so not only did God create woman, he brought her immediately into this intimate covenant relationship with Adam. He immediately established marriage and the family. And notice what Jesus reminds the Pharisees about marriage from Genesis 2.24. These two fleshes, Adam and Eve, the two fleshes in the marriage, they become one flesh. It's the, it's the covenant uniting of body and soul. It's expressed in the sexual relationship itself. God designed sex to be the consummating, even the dramatizing of the one flesh union between a man and his wife. And that's why God commands the husband in, in Genesis 2.24, leave your parents and cleave to your wife. Hold faster. It's like cement glue, right? It's the strongest language possible for something that he adheres to something else. So imagine you've gone out, you've got a home project, right? A, a D, or D, do it, do I, DIY project, right? And you've, got, you've gone out and you've gotten Gorilla Glue uh, from Home Depot that's supposed to stick forever to something. God has in mind a permanent tethering of the two so that they become one for the entirety of their lives together.
0: In other words, God's vision for marriage from the beginning of time, his ideal, is one man, one woman, for one lifetime. Marriage is bound by covenant promise, and it's enacted
1: by the one flesh, physical and spiritual union. So, so to dissolve
0: a marriage is really like ripping apart one body. That's why divorce is so painful. And again, that's why Jesus drives the point home like he does in Matthew nineteen six. He realizes...
1: That not only is the bond and covenant of marriage God's idea, God is the one who does the gluing. See that? He's the one who seals the marriage together. Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. One of the most amazing Privileges and responsibilities that I occasionally have as a pastor is to officiate a wedding. And friends, when I have that honor of speaking something almost into existence, I now pronounce you man and wife. I may be sealing the deal from the state side, but it is God, the creator and redeemer, sealing the marriage together in that moment. He does the gluing. Jesus says, "Whatever, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The point is that for a human being to separate what God has joined through through this any cause divorce is to usurp God's authority. It's the creature openly defying and opposing the creator. The Pharisees' casual approval of divorce, it was just the epitome, wasn't it, of, of arrogance and of irreverence for God. As we've seen so often in Matthew, the Pharisees had set aside this clear ordinance of God for their human tradition. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is pushing us toward the highest view of marriage possible. He's saying, here's God's
0: design, here's his intent, the covenant of love between one man and one woman for one life. Marriage is sacred. It's not just a legal convenience to get a tax break. It's,
1: It's not only the natural outworking of romance. It's an expression of our worship to God the King. In other words, friends, if you're married, one thing that should always be at the forefront of your mind and heart are questions like these.
0: How does my union with my spouse reflect upon the Lord? Does my marriage exemplify
1: well, albeit imperfectly, the designs for which God has ordained it? If not, what do I need to do? Husbands, I would say it starts with you. What do I need to do? What steps do I need to take so that my marriage glorifies God in the way that He has created it and designed it to be? it if you understand that a couple committed above all else, like supremely to God's glory, although they will no doubt go through hard times and rocky patches, they will be a happy couple in the main. It will be a flourishing marriage because we are most happy when God gets the most glory by our trust and by our obedience to him. In other words, friends, Jesus is saying, do not look for reasons to divorce your spouse. Look for ways to draw ever closer to him or to her. So husbands, are you leading your wife in such a way to make sure that this covenant glue of your marriage sticks, that it's strong? Do you humbly serve your wife in love? Are you working to keep the flame of love burning brightly? Or have you grown passive and apathetic or maybe even a a bit distant? Wives, are you actively looking for ways to humbly respond to your husband's leadership? Are you committed to tirelessly working for his spiritual good? Or have you grown so jaded by his deficiencies that you've begun
0: to make tally marks? on the divorce scorecard. I often tell this to couples in premarital counseling.
1: Friends, you ought to commit never to use the word divorce as a weapon or as a threat to manipulate your spouse. The possibility of divorce shouldn't be the club that you raise over your spouse's head every time you're not satisfied with him or her. Just determine from the get-go, or if you've divorced, been married, excuse me, for a long time, just commit right now that divorce is off the table. It's not part of your thinking or the conversation. So whatever happens, no matter how bad it gets, you're determined to see the marriage through to the end. And not just kind of with a grit your teeth and bear it mentality, but with a mindset to work together to make the marriage flourish as God has intended it to be.
0: Friends, if you're married, God has placed you on the same team as your spouse. You're glued together for God's glory. Jesus would have us get busy living out that team mentality.
1: Live in light of our union, not our differences. Friends, is there really any surprise that Matthew moves seamlessly in this gospel from the topic of forgiveness
0: to the topic of marriage? Not at all. Because one of the primary ways that the forgiven must forgive and keep on forgiving is marriage. If you're married, the six most common words in your marriage ought to be, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Six most common words if you're not quick to
1: own your own sin and solicit forgiveness from your spouse, or if you're not fast to grant forgiveness in your marriage, if you're marked more by defensiveness than humility and judgmental self-righteousness than mercy, friend, your marriage will probably limp along at best. And the enemy might use divorce as a real temptation in your life. But when the mercy of God in Christ permeates every pore of the marriage relationship, there is tremendous hope. Because the gospel of grace, friends, this gospel of Jesus is what God's spirit uses to sanctify us, even in relationship to our spouse. Well, let's remember why the Lord has made marriage, designed it to be permanent. God designed marriage to be permanent, this permanent love in marriage. It's supposed to be like a high definition picture of his own love for his people for Christ's love for His church. Just spend some time this afternoon meditating on how amazing Ephesians 5, 25 and following are about this picture of marriage, of the love of Christ in the church. God's love for us endures forever. He loves us despite of our sin. Christ gave His love or Christ gave His life for us to, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to make us new. Our marriages are not ends of themselves. They're designed to reflect the glories of God's love.
0: So friends, we fight tooth and nail to make sure that they flourish and that they last. Don't look for reasons to divorce. Number two, however, Jesus allows an exception. Jesus allows
1: an exception. The Pharisees were ready with a comeback. According to verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Again, they're just fixated, aren't they, on, on what Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 means. And notice how badly they misinterpreted it. Both the indecency as adultery crowd and the indecency as anything that I don't like crowd thought that Moses commanded divorce when the husband identified that indecency in the wife. But Jesus understands that Moses did not command divorce. The Old Testament law merely allowed for it in certain cases. Verse eight, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, what? There it is, allowed. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but, but from the beginning, it was not. So, in other words, all Deuteronomy was doing was trying to provide order to the havoc that sin wreaks in a marriage. Moses did not command divorce. He allowed for it if gross immorality, this kind of egregious immorality, had already ruptured the bond. Specifically, Jesus points out that that Moses allowed this provision of, of, of divorce due to the Israelites' hardness of heart. Friends, if you've read Deuteronomy, you know how often Moses pointed out how desperately Israel needed a circumcised heart, a surgically altered heart that was no longer hard, but soft, that was capable of loving God and his word. Jesus says the allowance of divorce, that was just simply one of the tragic allowances that, that God made for Israel's sin and rebellion. It was never the ideal. And Moses did not command it that it must happen when that sin happens. He merely gave per- permission for it under specific narrow circumstances. So perhaps Jesus's exception in verse 9 makes sense now in light of, of that context. He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The word sexual immorality in the, in the English translation is a is a really a single Greek word in the original. It refers broadly to sexual sin. It's the word porneia. And like with all words in the Bible's original languages, we understand their meaning by their context. And within the context of marriage, porneia most naturally refers to promiscuity, to infidelity with another partner, not the spouse. It does leave room for other types of egregious sexual sin as well. So so what is Jesus doing here? He agrees with the conservative Pharisees that yes, the indecency in Deuteronomy refers to adultery, but he disagrees with them that God commands the divorce. The Lord merely allows for it in scenarios where infidelity has already severed the covenant by the nature of the action itself. Some have, have said that to make a divorce exception for adultery, it just contradicts what Jesus just taught there in verses four to six. So on the one hand, Jesus says that marriage is permanent. But on the other hand, he says that the divorce is allowed when sexual sin with another partner has broken it. That just makes no sense. That's contradictory, self-contradictory. Well, I do think it makes sense, friends, when you realize that what Jesus is doing here, he's giving us categories to think in. He's given us creation, fall, and redemption categories to think in when it comes to marriage. So if I could kind of summarize it this way, here's, here's what Jesus is saying about these categories. He says, first of all, here's how God created things to work. One man, one woman, covenant of love, one life, right? But because of the this catastrophic nature of sin and the fall, because human hearts are hardened by the deceitfulness and the allure of sin, divorce is, is permitted when adultery or egregious sexual sin has already ruptured that bond. After all, we just learned God set up marriage as a one flesh union that's expressed in the sexual relationship. The certificate of divorce then merely codifies the brokenness, the 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 rupturing that's already taken place. However, and this is a massive however, because of the kingdom ethic of forgiveness and the nature of the new covenant, I think Jesus points us toward the hope of reconciliation even amid such devastating sin. Clearly, friends, what are the dominant notes that God plays over and over again in this
0: beautiful symphony of the new covenant? Grace, mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, the capacity for a believer's heart to change.
1: As Christ's followers, we are the community of the forgiven. Each one of us approaches the sin of our spouse, whatever that sin may be, remembering the infinite debt that God has absorbed in himself, our infinite debt for our sin. God absorbs it through the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Jesus took our place in the judgment dock, right? God released us from the eternal debt of our condemnation because Jesus paid it all. So John, you might say, well, John, what are you saying? Are, Are you saying then
0: that, I must forgive a spouse who betrays me? Beloved, as hard as it may be, yes. At least internally. At least in that internal forgiveness,
1: you must do over time the agonizing work of
0: absorbing that massive debt that your, the offending spouse owes you. We say, well, John, if the offending spouse
1: repents of his or her sin, does that mean that I have to reconcile? Well, at least at the base level of Christian fellowship, yes. Again, forgiveness takes into account our infinite debt that that God has forgiven us of, and then promises not to hold that offense against the person or raise it to others or even dwell it on ourselves in our own minds
0: said, John, are you saying that if my husband or wife cheats on me and repents, I have to stay in the marriage? No, I'm not. What Jesus seems to say is that
1: adultery is an exception that provides biblical grounds for divorce.
0: But nowhere does Jesus say that you must divorce your spouse. And I believe that because of the cross,
1: because of our new covenant hope in the gospel, friends, the soft, transformed heart, it not only turns from sin, but it has a staggering capacity to forgive and to reconcile. The gospel reaches even into the darkest crevices of our lives and our marriages. Our God is in the business of making all things new, even broken marriages. Let me just say, if God forbid this type of catastrophic sin rocks your marriage and you are the offended spouse, friends, I I would just ask, let the elders in our congregation be your protection and defense. If your spouse does not repent of the adultery, then the church is going to hold him or her accountable via the steps we looked at a few weeks ago, Matthew 18. And then, friends, your path, your decision becomes clearer and the edges of the situation become sharper as to what should happen as the church walks alongside you. Some of the most tragic pastoral situations that I've ever seen or or heard of in other churches are cases of unrepentant infidelity in a church member's marriage in which the church does
0: nothing to protect the vulnerable spouse. It's tragic. However, I, I hope it's clear by now that Jesus is teaching here in great contrast to the Pharisees.
1: It does not give men any built-in leverage in these situations. You notice that? The biblical grounds are the same for each spouse. And God has provided the local church to walk alongside brothers and sisters who are suffering in these very types of situations. Now, one, one question that may have popped into your mind is, John, are you saying then that what Jesus is saying is, is that adultery or serious sexual sin is the only biblical grounds for divorce? No, the apostle Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that another grounds is when a non-Christian spouse abandons the marriage. In that case, Paul's command is to, to the Christian spouse is to let it be so. That's what he says explicitly, let them go. Don't initiate a divorce because you're married to an unbeliever. After all, your spouse and your children, Paul says, are massively influenced for good by your Christian presence in the home. Don't initiate the divorce. But if the unbeliever deserts you, don't stand in the way. And then you're free to remarry. And friends, why I don't have the time to get into the weeds of of this today, it's the elders of RGC's conviction that neither Jesus nor Paul disaffirms what Moses taught in Exodus 21.10. You can look that up later. Exodus 21.10, there Moses gives instructions to husbands who end up marrying a wife who was their bondservant. And he says, even in that type of kind of unequal economic situation, husband, you need to provide to your bondservant wife food, clothing, and marital rights. In other words, protect and provide for her in every way. And if you don't, then the wife is free to leave the marriage. Friends, I think Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 seems to affirm Moses' teaching about this. And so it's our conviction here at RGC that that physical sexual abuse, patterns of egregious neglect in the marriage also may very well provide biblical grounds for divorce. If I can kind of like summarize all of this, we don't come to this very often, so I'm gonna just summarize it for you. The Bible seems to teach that Divorce is allowed, it's permitted for the type of sin that has already severed the marital bond. Adultery ruptures the one flesh union. The desertion of an unbelieving spouse ends the marriage by its very nature. He or she just walked away. Egregious abuse or neglect shatters the very core of what marriage is, the intimate, loving, covenant bond. Of a husband and wife. But again, friends, this is where godly elders, this is where a loving congregation, they're just a, a biblical must. Don't come to these judgments about divorce on your own unless the help, the authority, the care that God has given you within the family of God. Now, before we move on to the rest of the passage, let's just make a bit more application together. How should we as believers who are married, how should we married believers think about Jesus' teaching? Well, maybe it's it's helpful to, again, kind of contrast what the world says, what our culture promotes. Our culture says if you fall out of love, get a divorce. But Jesus says marital love isn't primarily a feeling, but a promise of self-giving love. Feelings will ebb and flow, but covenant love holds firm through the storms and through the waves. Our culture says if you're no longer happy, just end the marriage. Jesus says happiness isn't found in your circumstances. It's found in God, not personal. Our, our, our personal uh, feelings and circumstances, again, they change. But our happiness in God should may, remain the same. Happiness is found through holiness. The ultimate end is God. Our culture says you only live once, YOLO, right? So if you find someone more attractive or or more personable or a better match than your spouse, you might think about leaving him or her for that person. Jesus says, hold fast your spouse. Only have eyes for him or her. Adultery starts in the mind before it ever gets to the actions, right? Brother or sister, if you are, are steeped this morning in, in personal sexual sin, whether it's pornography, whether it's flirting with a, a coworker or just daydreaming about another person, not your spouse, I beg of you, cut that sin off now. Bring it into the light of day now, right? Guys, enlist another brother you trust to help you in the fight. Sisters, recruit another trusted woman in our church who will lock arms with you and help you fight for holiness and therefore help you fight for your marriage. The enemy would love nothing more than to springload a trap of temptation that you are cherishing in the dark. Don't think that you're strong enough to resist when that ultimate bigger temptation comes. Paul said, let anyone who thinks he stands
0: take heed lest he fall. Say, John, I'm I'm sitting here this morning as someone who's been divorced.
1: I I look back on parts of my life and former marriage, and, and as you've been preaching, it's like guilt and shame floods my mind once again.
0: Can God... Use me if I've been unbiblically divorced. Or maybe I'm still married. We're still married, but I've done the unthinkable to my spouse.
1: Can the Lord, can the Lord restore the, the years the locusts have eaten in my
0: marriage? The, the distrust that my sin has sowed. Friends, I am so happy this morning that I get to answer those questions with an unequivocal yes.
1: Divorce, while tragic, is not the unpardonable sin. There is no sin that God will refuse to forgive for those who repent of their sin and trust
0: in the saving work of Christ. Jesus died for divorcees. He died for adulterers. He died for Sinners whose marriages are constantly beset by arguing and
1: fighting and coldness. Jesus died for all who would turn from their sin and trust in him. Our great hope this morning, friends, is not our past, present, or future performance in marriage. You realize that. That is not our hope. Our hope is Jesus the Christ. The one who was, is, and always will be faithful. Who died and rose again for sin-filled marital partners like you and me. Friends, you may have broken your vow before God, but God has never broken and will never, can never break his vow to save for all eternity all of those who come to him by faith in Jesus. There's no vow our God has ever broken. So when the guilt and shame of your past floods in, friends, don't wallow in it. Don't try to self-atone for it. Don't grovel as if you're some sort of class B Christian. Make a beeline for Calvary and bask in the love of God in Christ and say, oh God, thank you for your mercy to me. I don't deserve it, but it's there. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Help me to live every day. Whether I'm single or married,
0: help me to live every day as a glad response to such mercy. Number three, singleness and celibacy might honor God too. The disciples' response to Jesus
1: in verse 10 seems to indicate that up to that point, they shared the the liberal Pharisees' low view of marriage. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. In other words, if the bar is this high, better to stay single. Amen? And Jesus responds that it might be good to stay single, but not because of the high bar for marriage. Look at verse 11. And he said to them, not everyone can receive this same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, you've probably gathered this by the context, but eunuchs were males who did not experience normal sexual development or were incapable of a normal sexual relationship. And Jesus grants, doesn't he, God has providentially hindered some from marriage due to a physical defect. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, Jesus says. Others, Jesus says, have been made eunuchs by men. Okay, so these eunuchs often served in the, in the royal court of the ancient kings. Eunuchs often became the most trusted servants of the king because the king could trust them not to touch his harem. Right? They often rose to positions of great influence in the kingdom. And Jesus uses these two examples of of singleness and celibacy to make a massive point about citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Some Christian disciples might make themselves eunuchs, not for the court of any earthly king, but for more faithful service to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Of course, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He doesn't have in mind physical surgery to become a eunuch, right? But a life of celibacy devoted single-mindedly to the kingdom of God. Notice Jesus twice insists that this life of celibacy, it's not for every disciple. He says, celibacy is only for, for those, for, and I'm I struggling this morning. Celibacy is for only those to whom it has been given, verse 11, and the one who is able to accept it, verse 12. In other words, whether or not a person should pursue marriage depends on whether God has enabled that person to make control over the sexual drive. The Apostle Paul wrote explicitly in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. One of my best friends from college and seminary is a pastor in Long Island. He, yes, he's single. He has no desire to be married. I've asked him very direct questions about his contentment level, about his desires And it's clear to me that at least for now, he falls in the category of a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. Praise the Lord. Beloved, while Jesus and Paul consider marriage to be the typical path for most, single celibate brothers and sisters are, again, are not second-class Christians or B-rate humans. God's ideal for humanity isn't found, friends, in our sexuality. Otherwise, Jesus himself, a single celibate man, would be subhuman, and that would be heresy. No, the ideal humanity isn't found in our desires of any type, but in the life committed to glorifying God and the calling to which he's called us. In the kingdom of God, Jesus says, the gospel of Christ should have such a profound impact on how we think, how we live, that it, that it might be best for single Christians to remain single and celibate, to wholeheartedly devote themselves to the service of the king of the kingdom of heaven. You say, John, I I don't think I have some special gift of celibacy. My, My wiring doesn't
0: seem to be for a single life. I long to be married, but that desire remains unfulfilled. Brother, sister, I know that's a hard situation to be in, but let me just say, no matter what your desires
1: are, whether you want to be married or you want to be single, your singleness at this stage of your life is a gift from God, just as much as marriage is for others. It's part of God's calling on your life right now. And so let me encourage you toward, toward, toward contentment, toward satisfaction in the Lord that will, that will fuel a life that's dedicated towards serving him with as much as you can, with all you have in the local church. Friends, churches are strongest in the gospel when singles are thriving in the gospel. You know that? Churches are strongest in the gospel when singles are thriving in the gospel alongside the married. Brothers and sisters who are married, I think the Lord has called us to give special honor to single brothers and sisters in the church, to serve them and care for them as their family to have a special heart for those who are seeking faithfulness in their calling as, as celibate singles. Friends, what can you do to bless our single brothers and sisters, to minister to them, to include them in your life, in your activities, in your relationships? Beloved, we pursue this type of mindset because our great groom, Jesus, laid down his life for his
0: bride, the church. And now we as his people respond to him with a heart full of love and submission to our king. May each of our marriages or our singleness faithfully point others to our great creator and redeemer until he comes. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for grace and enabling by your spirit
1: to live in light of what we have learned this morning, to apply your word faithfully to our hearts and to our lives, to take the hard steps necessary, necessary if need be to walk in obedience to King Jesus. Oh, Father, what, as Beau already prayed this morning, strengthen marriages by your power and by your grace, even today. Through steps of obedience and forgiveness, we pray that you would bring restoration and healing and hope. To our single brothers and sisters, again, may they live in in the grace and knowledge of Christ, be maturing as as disciples of Jesus, actively serving him. Until you either change their stage
0: of life or until you come, Father, make us all faithful, we pray in Jesus' name.